All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Nehemiah. And if you don't have a Bible, we have spread some around and we will be on page 405 in the black Bible that you'll see under the chairs. So you could follow along with us there. In our Nehemiah series, we're looking at a point in Israel's history uh, where they have been returned to Israel, returned to Jerusalem after an exile. So because they had sinned and they had walked away from God, he had exiled them and scattered them through the conquering of the Assyrian Empire and Babylonian Empire. So they'd been scattered everywhere. God's now bringing them back, showing grace to them again, and they're rebuilding the city. We've called this series Repairing the Ruins. And so what we see are the people of God repairing the city whose very purpose was to broadcast to the nations who God is. So there's a lot of distance in culture and time and practice between us and what they were doing then, but there's a sameness that we can latch on to. If they had faith in the same Creator God, that God that had made all things, who is absolutely just and righteous, and who invites the nations into a relationship with Him through His grace and through His mercy. So in those ways, He's exactly the same then as He is now, and we're the same in the sense of we're the people of God. We're trying to build a place where God's name will be honored. So this week we're calling it a culture of humility. Part of the rebuilding is rebuilding a culture of humility within themselves, within their society. Last week, chapter 8, probably everybody's favorite chapter in Nehemiah, right? It's all about preaching. I'm sure you all loved that. I know I loved that chapter. Um, So they were looking at learning God's word. And now we see a response where they're responding in humility. They're responding in grief over their sin. Um, Humility is knowing properly who you are. It's not just beating yourself up, but it's knowing who you really are. Um, And so a lot of us either struggle with thinking we're God and we're in control of our universe, or with thinking that some other false God is going to bring order into our life, right? Like the false God of relationship or money or power or pleasure. And so the God of the Bible will challenge that and say only in a humble relationship with him are things going to thrive in our lives? Are we going to flourish? So we're going to read chapter 9, and what I'd like to do is just pick up in verse 29. So we're going to kind of pick up at the end of it. They're telling the story of Israel's history here. So we're picking up towards the end of the story of who the people of God are. So in verse 29, chapter 9, and you warned them, talking about God, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not Obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you're a gracious and merciful God. Let me stop there and pray and ask God to teach us today. God, we pray that you would teach us. We pray that your spirit would meet us here. We thank you that you love us. And God, we know we have messed up, but we also see that you're a gracious and forgiving God. And so we have hope. We have hope that we can be honest about who we are, but we also have hope that you love us more than we've ever imagined. And so we just pray that you would meet us here, shape us, form us to be more like your son, Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've said often that 
who we are as a people, who we are as a church is based not on us being better than everybody else out there. As a matter of fact, membership here requires for you to know that there's something wrong with you. And people often confuse that. People often think that the church is the place for the good people and the bad people are out there. When indeed it's, it's kind of not that way at all, right? We, we have to know that we're broken. That's why we're here. So for some of you that came today thinking, I'm better than everybody else, so I need to go to church, I'm sorry, you're mixed up, okay? We come to church because we know we're broken. We come to church because we're humbled by our own sin. We come to church because we know we need God's help in our life. And so we're trying to build a culture of humility here, just like the people of God were trying to build a culture of humility back then. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous is famous. It's a famous recovery group system all over the world. It's huge. It's been going for years and years. And one of the basic principles that we share with Alcoholics Anonymous is you have to admit you have a problem. You have to admit that you have a problem or you're not going to go anywhere. And that's really where the people of God start here as well. Uh, there's a really helpful definition of humility before we look at the Nehemiah passage that I think uh, frames it in really the same uh, progress that we see in Nehemiah chapter 9. So I wanted to read this. It's from John Piper talking about Romans chapter 12. And he gives some helpful words here. He's talking about Romans chapter 12. And he says, The opposite of high self-regard is faith in Christ. Okay, so the opposite of high self-regard, thinking I'm awesome, the opposite of that is faith in Christ. He goes on, the opposite of high self-regard is not mainly low self-regard. Do you see that? We, we often run to that and think the answer is, you know, thinking I'm a loser. No, he says, the opposite of high self-regard is not mainly low self-regard, though that is a needed starting place in view of our sin and God's holiness. The opposite of high self-regard is high regard for Christ. The opposite of pride is not paralyzing self-condemnation, but liberating Christ exaltation, which means that the best way to use your your spiritual gifts is to forget about yourself as your joy in Christ spills over in love to other people. So he says, if you have a pride problem, if you think you're awesome, the fix for that is not just beating yourself up, although it might be good to start with, hey, I'm not as awesome as I thought, right? might be a good place to start with a low self-regard. Ultimately, you have to move past that to a high regard for Christ, for a high regard for who God is. And that's the only way we can actually be healthy. And we see that same progress here in the text in chapter 9. So we want to start with grief over sin. We start with the low self-regard. Humility grieves over sin. And then we move on to regard God. And that's the only place through that progression that we can get to the healthy humility that God wants of us. So humility, first of all, humility grieves over sin. Humility grieves over sin. If you look at verses 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2, it says it this way. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Translation, dirt, okay? They're putting dirt on their heads. Sounds weird. Verse 2, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So they were grieving over their sin. They were confessing they were sinners. They were saying, we've messed up. We haven't lived up to what God has asked us to do. We're broken. God's told us to do this, and we're doing that. We're sinners. 
And they not only confessed it verbally, but they put dirt on their head. They wore sackcloth. They, they bodily represented what they believed to be true on the inside. It's interesting in perspective in chapter 8. Last week we saw when, when God's word was taught and when God's standards were explained, right? We'll just kind of summarize and say the Ten Commandments. When you actually pay attention to the Ten Commandments, you realize, oh no, I've just been keeping my favorite seven, but I failed miserably at three of them, right? We all have our favorite and we kind of surround ourselves with a group of people that like the same commandments that we do and the same sins that we like. And so then we excuse our sin and say, oh, it's okay. Everybody in my circle does it. It's not really a sin. It's the seven commandments, not the ten, right? But when you really understand God's law, you recognize that you're a sinner. You recognize that you've failed. The the way the New Testament talks about it is the New Testament says it this way in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that's a big picture way of defining it. Instead of just going commandment by commandment, it just says we're made to be glorious like God. God created us to reflect his image, to be holy. To, to love people, to be generous, to be brave, to be kind. And we all know, when we're honest, we've, we've failed. We don't measure up to that glory, and that's what sin is. It's not being perfect. It's not, not being awesome like God is. That's what he's made us for, and we've fallen short of that. And so again, to, to be a member of God's people is to admit that. Is to admit that. Is to stop lying about it two ways we lie about it. One way we lie about it is we say there's no such thing as sin, right? The other way we lie about it is we say, I'm good. It's just the bad people over there. And that kind of goes back to the seven commandments thing I was saying earlier, right? We just, we just pick our favorite commandments, keep those, and condemn everybody else. But God says all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. So my first question is, do you admit it? Can you confess it? Do you recognize it? Or are you caught in the trap of either religion or rebellion? Are you caught in the trap of religion where you say you're better than everybody else? Or are you caught in the trap of rebellion where you say it doesn't matter? I can thrive by indulging my desires. I'll just follow my impulses and that's good. So those are the two traps, religion and rebellion. Saying that you're better than everybody else or saying that there is no standard. God says there is a standard. God made you. He gets to decide what the standard is. And we've all fallen short of it. So do you confess that? Do you admit that to God and to others? And then do you, ever, do you ever bodily act that out? I think we see, again, here in the Hebrew people, something that's challenging for our culture, depending on kind of what neighborhood, what tribe, what background you come from. We respond in different ways, right? I'd say majority culture in the United States, we tend to not bodily act out our faith very often. It tends to just be up here a lot. Um, and we see here an example of it's, it's healthy to act it out. It's healthy to act it out. They actually put dirt on their heads. I don't know that I would want to lay that on you as a command, right? Everybody go home and rub some dirt in your hair. Um, although it feels kind of cool at the beach when you do that. Anyway, that's another story. But I, I don't know that you have to be commanded to do it this way. But I think we have a good model here of recognizing outwardly that we're sinners, I'd say the opposite is a problem. We've all seen religious rituals where we're doing things outwardly that we don't believe in our hearts. So hear me, the, the important thing is that you would confess your sin. That's the important thing, that you would admit, that you would come before God and say, yeah, you would really grieve over it. So my question to you is how? How do you grieve over your sin? How do you do that? It's difficult. It's awkward. We're a culture, recognize that we're a culture that just doesn't really do that. We're a culture that doesn't really believe in sin. 
Um, in our own worship services, we always have a time in the middle where we pause and confess our sins. Um, and that's always awkward, right? Because our culture just doesn't believe in it. We'd rather just do the celebration part. We don't want to pause and confess our sins. But this is a, a part of the movement, a part of the moving towards the celebrating of God's grace is starting with, I've messed up. So I would challenge you, how, how do you grieve over that in your, your own life? One of the biblically commanded ways that I think we express this uh, outwardly is through baptism. I have here a picture of a, a naval chaplain baptizing Someone in, this is like a bucket from a front-end loader, I think, in Iraq. So that's kind of cool, creative use of front-end loaders there. So in baptism, you are really grieving over your sin. You're confessing your sins when you get baptized. There's two huge symbols that are real clear in the New Testament. I think because the Bible is so rich, there's probably like 50 symbols going on here. But two really clear, obvious ones that we see in the New Testament. One is washing. So it's kind of picking up the dirt on your head imagery, and it's saying, I need a bath. It's saying I'm acting out physically what I believe to be true about myself spiritually. Spiritually, I'm dirty and I need Jesus to wash away my sins. So I'm going to physically act out what I believe to be spiritually true. So part of baptism is a washing symbol. It's a drama. You're acting out what you believe to be true spiritually. And then it's also a death and resurrection symbol. It's also a going down and coming back up to new life, recognizing that you have union with Christ and that Jesus died for your sins and Jesus conquered death, so that gives you hope of conquering death as well. He's the first fruits of the new creation, of the resurrection, of new life. So those two symbols are very clear, and I think both of those symbols indicate grief over sin. So that's a, just a Christian external way to express your faith and express grief over sin. Again, that's where it's got to start. If you've never had any grief over sin, and if you never, ever have grief over your sin, I think you might want to question if, if you have faith. Because you might just have kind of the American faith of God's not mad any, anymore, everything's fine, he doesn't care, he's asleep on the couch, you know, whatever variation of that you might have of grace. Well, grace biblically doesn't make sense unless you recognize you're a sinner. And I'm a sinner. And we're all sinners. And we all alike need forgiveness. We needed a God who would take our sins upon himself. And that's the story we see in Jesus, that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God, that Jesus was punished in our place, that he was our substitute. All of these Old Testament um, images from the sacrifices that took place in Jerusalem, the city they're rebuilding, were images that showed them that punishment needed to happen, that a sacrifice needed to be made, and we see all that fulfilled in Jesus. He's the one. He's the one that became our substitute. He's the one that took our place. So, application. Have you grieved over your sin? Do you grieve over your sin? What does that look like? How do you do that? I recommend acting it out. I recommend praying prostate. I recommend falling on your face. I recommend even maybe putting dirt on your head. At the very least, acknowledging verbally before God, just as they did, confessing your sins and the sins of your fathers. Confessing your sins and the sins of your people. Recognizing, you know what? We're not whole in and of ourselves. Instead of always talking about how great your family is, instead of always talking about how great your tribe is or how great your race is or how great your country is, recognizing, well, yeah, we've messed up. We need God to forgive us. We need salvation in Jesus. So then it's a movement. You don't stay here. Remember Piper said, you don't just stay there. This is where it starts. You move to exaltation. So humility makes much of God. So they don't just stay in confession of sin. They move through it. Okay? 
So you've got to start with grieving, you've got to start with confession, you've got to recognize your sin, and then you move on to God's grace and His forgiveness. Look at verses 3 through 5. And they stood up in their place, and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni or Bunny, never sure how to say that, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani, and they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pathiah said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So corporately, they're building a culture of humility, and they build that culture by corporately confessing that they're sinners, that they've fallen short of who God is, and then now saying, but God, you are awesome. God, you are big. God, you are amazing. You are so great. So again, this is part of what humility looks like, is not just staying in, I'm messed up, but going to God is big. God is awesome. God's made all these things. God is so powerful. God is so amazing. My question for you is, uh, where in your life do you do that? Is the only place that you bless the name of the Lord or proclaim how big he is or make much of God, is the only place you do that in church? Singing songs that we make you sing, right? I mean, is that the only place that you say God is great? Or do you have other places where that's happening as well? We're committed to sing week after week and do this week after week and come corporately and say these things together. The application, though, that I want to ask you is, are you doing that in your individual lives? Is that happening somewhere else? Is that becoming a rhythm in your daily life? I think a helpful way to get there is to just think about where are the places where that comes most naturally. For me, personally, when I go outside on a clear night and I look at the stars, I just naturally praise God. God, you're so big. Look at everything you've made. I think it's helpful to kind of key in on where your heart is and where you recognize God as creator, where you recognize God as big, where you recognize God as the almighty God, the one who's worthy of praise. Where are the places in your life? Where are the rhythms in your life where that's already happening a little bit? And then you can kind of fan that into flame and say, I'm going to do that more. Um, And then maybe try to do that in other areas of my life as well. Just confess in my, my prayers, right? We often think of prayer as just asking God for stuff, but part of prayer can be adoration and telling God how great he is. Maybe it's through music in the car by yourself. Maybe it's going on walks. Maybe it's uh, in relationship with other people and community and small groups. But there's places where you get excited about what God is doing and who God is in the world and say, we want to take that and, and do that more. Proclaim his bigness. Um, a great, great uh, theological movie is Joe versus the Volcano. And there's a scene in the movie where they're kind of like shipwrecked and floating out on these watertight trunks out in the middle of the ocean, and he, he wakes up and he says this, Dear God, whose name I do not know, thank you for my life. I forgot how big. I forgot how big. Thank you. Thank you for my life. That's how I feel every time I walk outside on a beautiful, it's a gorgeous day today. When I walk outside and the weather's perfect and it's gorgeous, you just, you just can't help but see God is the one that made all these things. Romans 1, it says that God reveals himself in creation as the one that made all these things. He reveals his power. He gives us signs that he's there. 
So we know that's a clear place that he reveals himself. Throughout Scripture, you see this kind of double reason to make much of God, that he's creator, and then also that he's redeemer. So the story is God made all these things, and then God also saves us. And so as you read Scripture, you'll see those two tracks that the people of God go down again and again. God made all things, God saved me. God made all things, God saved me. And so we see him in creation displaying his power and how awesome he is. And we should praise him for that. And then we also see him in redemption and saving us and what he did for us through Jesus and revealing himself through his word and through his people Israel. We see him as a saving God, as a God who comes after us in creation. John Calvin um, said it this way. He said that there's uh, the just the signs that we can see of who God is in creation, but then we need glasses to read those signs properly, and the scripture are the glasses that allow us to actually see it. Um, So theologians talk about general revelation, just the general God's revealed himself by making all things. When you walk outside, you're like, God made this. He's awesome. Romans 1 says, if you don't say that, you're a liar. Um, And again, I I hate that sounds kind of strong. Like if you're an atheist, man, I'm glad you're here. But Romans 1 says you're a liar if you look outside and say, no, he didn't make this. It says you're suppressing the truth. You're ripping wires out of your brain, saying, no, mm -mm, no, he didn't do that. No, that's not him. So we have general revelation, God is there, and then we have special revelation because there's a problem that happened in between, right? General revelation, God made all things good. Then special revelation, he comes to save us. What's the peace in the middle? What happened? What happened to the world? Us, right? We happened to the world. The world was perfect. The world was paradise. And humanity, we've broken it. So we all have our like, favorite things to blame in the world. It's those people or those kinds of people or corporations or this thing or that thing or global this or global that or whatever. We, we are what has broken the world. Human beings, our sin. So the story is God made all things great. We should praise him for that. We've sinned and broken the world and God comes after us to save us. A special, special revelation, specific revelation gives us the glasses to be able to read the signs out there of what God has made in the world. So my question again, application point, are you praising God? Are you just making much of him in your life? Are there places where you're doing that? Recognize the places that you do that naturally. Try to fan that in flame and try to build that into habits and disciplines in your life where you're praising God more, where you're exalting him more, where you're making much of him. That then builds you into the kind of person God wants you to be, that then is developing a life of proper humility. The next thing that we see is that humility tells the truth. Humility tells the truth. We're naturally storytellers, and we naturally try to tell stories that either make us the hero or make us a helpless victim. Either way, we're deflecting from who we really are and who God really is. And so when we read Scripture, that helps us to tell the story properly. Humility tells the true story. Look at verse 6. He says, you are the Lord, you alone, right? So my story goes something like this, Dave is the Lord. That's the story I like to tell, and so I have to read scripture and be reminded of the true story. No, 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 God is the Lord. So I challenge you, we all have these ways of telling the story in our mind. I am, I'm in control, I can fix this, I can change that. Or the other side, I'm a victim, right? That other person's the Lord, or that other thing is the Lord, Power is the Lord. Pleasure is the Lord. Not being alone, that would be the Lord that would fix everything in my life. He says, no, God, he alone is the Lord. 
You alone, you are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous." And you saw the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. So he's now rehearsing, or they are rehearsing now the story of God, telling Scripture. This is a great chapter. I would encourage you to go back and read this uh, on your own this week. Another chapter like this that just kind of summarizes the whole story of the Bible is Acts chapter 7. So the deacon Stephen is telling the story of God. It's kind of going down the same track here. There's a lot of other passages like this in Scripture. Some of the Psalms do this where they just recount the story of God. Helpful for you. If you're, if you're just a beginning Bible student, these are cliff notes for you, okay? This is kind of just contains the whole story all in one place. It can help you get it in order. It can help you make sense of it. So reread Nehemiah chapter 9. Reread Acts chapter 7. Reread Hebrews chapter 11 where it just kind of gives you a summary of who God is and his interaction with people. I want to go on and read more from verse 16. Picking up farther down the story, he says, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. Right? So we were presuming, we were acting like we were gods instead of God is God, and we stiffened our neck and tried to do our own thing. It says in verse 17, They refused to obey. And they were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. God is gracious. Didn't forsake them. So this story, if you read it this week, it's just going to go back to these themes again and again. Of God did great things. We went our own way. God was gracious to us. God did great things. We went our own way. God was gracious to us. And you're, start, you're going to start to get the rhythm of the story here. Skip down to verse 31. He says, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Do you see the theme here? It's, it's kind of being beat into us as you recount the story of the people of God. You start to recognize that's my story also. That's who I am. I fit into this story. Verse 32 says, now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem Little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. So you see how he's combining all these elements. They're putting all these things together. So God is faithful and righteous when he punishes us for our sins. It's completely okay. It's appropriate for God to punish us for our sins, but God is gracious. They keep coming back to that. But you are merciful. You are gracious. So help us. So God, help us. You can call out to him for grace because that's the kind of God that he is. My question for you is, do you know the story? Are you just telling part of the story? Are you just stuck on the part of, I'm a loser, I'm a loser, I'm a loser, shame, shame, shame? Or in the opposite end of the perspective where you don't acknowledge sin at all, you don't acknowledge God's lordship at all, you think you're the hero of the story. You've got to have all those elements of the story. God made all things and God is great because he's the creator 
we owe him our allegiance. And so that means we're sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, but God pursues us in love. He, he loves us. He doesn't just leave us in our sin, but he comes after us. And Jesus is the substitute we needed. And through faith in Jesus, through union with him, we're adopted into the family of God. So we're seen as children of God. He delights in us. He loves us. I have a picture here of some history books. Um, what are the stories that you tell? Are you telling the truth about what really happened in the world and what's really happened in your life? Are you writing your own history books? Are you writing your own story? The world we live in is a world that tells us to write our own story, to do our own thing. Forget God. He can't be trusted, right? That's what people say all the time. The Bible says, no, forget us. We can't be trusted, but he didn't forget us. He came after us in grace and forgiveness, and that's proven through Jesus. Jesus makes sense of that story. He's the one that absorbed the wrath of God. So my challenge to you is to tell the truth. Where are you? What are next steps you need to take to begin uh, telling the truth, telling the right story, knowing that your story connects with this story. Um, some of you are beginners, and I would tell you, uh, when we help to start a, a school, one of the things we would say to people is that schools are not for smart people. Schools are for helping people to become smart people, right? It's like a gym is not for people that are in shape. A gym is for people that want to get in shape, Right? So again, we're glad you're here and we want to encourage you to take practical next steps to learn the scriptures and to learn God's story so that you can tell the truth to yourself and to those around you. So you don't just keep making up your stories or listening to the stories of our culture, but you're able to tell the truth and know what the truth is. You're able to read the general revelation of this world through the glasses of the special revelation. So what are next steps that you need to take? Like I said, for some of you, if you're just new to this whole thing, Cliff notes are great. Nehemiah 9 is cliff notes. This is them telling the whole story and putting it all in one place. Acts chapter 7 is cliff notes. It tells the whole story. If you haven't read the scriptures much, sometimes it's hard to read Old Testament because of all the cultural distance and time distance. So you might start with something like the Gospel of Mark, which is the action-oriented gospel, or the Gospel of John, which is kind of the most uh, poetic and smooth of the gospels. It's written in kind of a beautiful way say those are two great places to start if you just haven't read any Bible at all, but I challenge you to, to think about it. God, what are next steps I could take? Um, a lot of you hate, hate visual reading. Um, I learn a lot better by listening. I like to listen to the Bible a lot, I and mean, I read a lot too, but listening can be helpful, so maybe you could start listening to the scriptures. Um, maybe you could go to a Bible study. We have a lot of small groups that are focused on applying what the Bible says in our own lives, and then we also have groups that focus more on studying and learning how to actually read it and honor it and, and figure out what it means. So we really encourage you to jump into one of those groups. Again, you, it's a safe place. You'd be, you'd be welcomed, right? You, you, don't, you don't go to a Bible study because you have all the answers. Uh, and if there's a person in your group that has all the answers and is always talking, well, that's, that's not how it's supposed to work, right? It's a place for you to learn. You're, you're coming to learn and grow in your understanding of the knowledge. So what are next steps you could take? I would encourage you, if you have a pen, just write those down right now. Even Just say, God, I feel like you're calling me to take this next step. Maybe I just need to start reading the Bible at home. Maybe I start need, to, need to start listening to it in the car. Maybe I need to join that Bible study. I was already thinking about joining it, and now Dave's talking about this, so I guess maybe I, didn't, I need to do that. Maybe I need to join that, that Bible study group. But I'd say take a next step so you can start telling the truth, because we can't ever 
flourish as who God's made us to be without that culture of humility. And the only way we can get there is by understanding who God really is, knowing who we are in light of that. Well, to wrap up, Jesus obviously is our, he's our best example. He's our best example because he was king of the universe, but he humbled himself to come after us. So because he was willing to love us in that way, humbly, to come for us, to be born as a baby on this earth. I mean, Christmas is just one huge celebration of the humility of Jesus. Being born in a manger. He did all that because he loves us. I I want you to know that. Again, we don't just stay with grief over our sin. We've messed up, but we move through that to God's grace to us. God loves us so much that he sent Jesus for us to adopt us as his very children. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond in communion and a final song together. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've come after us. God, help us not to live the two lies that fight humility. One lie is that we can save ourselves, and the other lie is that we don't need saving. So God, we pray that you'd help us to be humble, have a right view of ourselves, knowing that we have sinned, but that you have shown grace, and you love us, and you make us your own. Pray that we would remember that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.